Well, hello and welcome to episode number 477 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos and in this week's show we've got some misbehaving biz jets, a new airline, Airbus is scratching its bottom and we look at back at Concorde on its 20th anniversary of its retirement. So not with us this week is Matt Smith and uh, Armando is going to be hopefully joining us later on uh, to bring us some military news which is all about some tankers, B-21s, taxi tests and a farewell to the gazelle. But joining me across the fields, the glens, the dales of the UK is of course Neville Bounds. Hello Nev. Well, hello, mate. Isn't that a bit rude of Armando? So he's actually skipping the whole of the commercial section and only coming in for the military now. Thanks, Unbelievable, isn't it? But, you know, that's how it is. So uh, how are things for you, Nev, uh, this week? Uh, are you well? Very good, yes. Hectic. Um, busy, because I'm preparing for going on holiday uh, to uh, Las Palmas, Gran Canaria, uh, on Sunday with Mrs Nev, so that's good. And just in time for that, uh, the new BA uh, luggage tags. Just in time for the airport baggage handling to lose them, probably. So I, won't. I, I didn't realise you flew BA, Nev. No, there you go. You learn something every day, don't you? Um, so that's that. Um, just set the competition for next week as well, and we'll have the answers to this week's quiz a bit later on. Oh, good. I'm glad. Well, I'm glad. Uh, glad you're here with us, Nev. As always, good to see you on the show, and um, hopefully we'll uh, have you back with some uh, Nev rant or Nev's rants uh, very soon as well. I think, oh, you, well, well, I think you've got some, haven't you, for the there, show? There's some later on. Not not mine, but uh, people that I know have ranted so I've included that instead <laughs> so as I said no Matt this week he's busy off enjoying himself at some party somewhere over in Park Radio Land over in Dis in Norfolk uh, but we've got our super sub back on the show he's our aficionado of all things Airbus he is of course a fully fledged captain and it is well it's only one person isn't it? it's it's Andy hello again Back again. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Oh, I don't know who for, but it's always a pleasure. You don't sound so excited, Andy. Honestly, <laughs> you know I love you know I love coming on. Love coming on. So what's what's the uh, beer of choice? Because I know there'll probably be a few people in the chat room who are wondering what bit what the beer of choice is this week, Andy. Tonight it's a German one. It's called Beerischer Hells. So it's a nice Munich Hells Lager. There you go. Here we go for all our German listeners. Um, well, I've probably said it completely wrong, but it's very nice. <laughs> I know Dirk. Dirk has probably heard of that beer. I'd imagine he's in. I know he's in the chat room. But uh, yeah, good to see you, uh, Andy. What you been up to? Anything good? Exciting? Um, no, it's been a, well. I did some flying over last weekend. Uh, flew to Corfu on Monday night, which is always good fun. And I've just been down in Gatwick at the CAA on a course this week, and then next week I'm uh, I'm office bound all week. Oh, blimey. Sounds like fun. Yeah. But what, what's best, though, Andy? Come on, office or the sim? Uh, a nice mix of both. <laughs> there you go. Just because I know you, you pilots hate going answer. in the sim. But <laughs> oh, no, I don't mind the sim. I love the sim. So, Nev, uh, do you want to see who's in the live YouTube chat room this evening? Yes, I will do that. 
Carlos. Uh, Dirk S is in there. Main man Micah. Bill is in there. Richard Adams. Uh, who else? We've got Captain Cruz. Aaron's in there. Mazuz. Uh, who else we've got? Uh, Hobby Time. Masha's in there as well. Uh, Lee Davis, of course. And Richard Adams. A full compliment tonight, no less. So that's uh, great stuff, isn't it? Thank you for joining, folks. Really appreciate it. Yes, and don't forget, if you're listening to us on the old audio podcast, don't forget to check us out on YouTube every Friday night, 7 o'clock, where we stream the live show. And uh, while you're there, give us a subscribe, and also don't forget to click that bell icon as well to find out when we are going live on a Friday night, because we'd love to have you in the chat room, wouldn't we, Nev? Uh, yes, please. Yeah. yeah. So we've got loads of stuff to get through this week, including the all-important commercial news. So if all the team's ready... We are. Let's yes. go. Yep. So, kicking off the first story for this week, then. Uh, this one's from the bbc.co.uk. Warning fares, our flight fares, are set to, uh, to rise after air charges hiked. Airlines have warned passengers will face higher fares after the UK's aviation regulator increased traffic control charges. The costs paid by airlines come after the UK air traffic control meltdown back in August, which led to long flight delays and left thousands stranded. The national air traffic charges will rise from £47 to £64 per flight until 2027, an average of £2.08 per passenger. Airlines said the increases cannot be justified given the recent disruption. In August, around 2,000 flights at airports across the UK were cancelled when that system automatically uh, processing flight plans failed, leaving passengers stranded. During the IT meltdown, airlines incurred huge costs to provide accommodation and put more flights on for customers who were stuck overseas. Some airlines, including Ryanair, have called for such costs to be covered by NATS. Decision is in to increase charges by regulator, uh, the Civil Aviation uh, Authority, is understood to be separate to the ongoing investigation into the system failure incident. The CAA have said the move would enable Nats to recover its operating costs and finance new investment, it said. Safety is, as they always say, the prim primary statutory duty for the company and added a charge increase was consistent for Nats to maintain safe operation. Andrew Walker, chief economist of the CAA, said the price rise should ensure the company provides an efficient service and value for money. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot of money um, to me, but I suppose on the grand scheme of things, it must be Nev. Well, they can't win, can they? They, the, uh, you know, they they had that big moment, obviously, which is pretty rare let's be honest but obviously the, the disruption it caused was quite phenomenal um just as a matter of interest uh if you didn't really know the currently the currently the, the duties and surcharges we have to pay are air passenger duty which is a government tax regulated by hmrc here in the uk uk passenger service charge and that's a charge imposed by the airlines to cover costs they pay to airports for the passenger to use the airport's facilities 
Insurance and security, sounds obvious, doesn't it? A charge imposed by, uh, by airlines to cover the increased security and insurance cost uh, post 11th of September 2001, 9-11. And a fuel surcharge, which is a charge imposed by airlines to cover increasing costs of fuel. Uh, so there's, there's plenty th th there that you, you'll see on your ticket. And of course, it, once you start flying long haul and you start flying in the premium cabins, Start taking a look at some of what, some of those uh, charges. They are eye-watering in some cases, I must say. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm sort of on the fence on this. Really, I understand why they've got to put it up, but I also understand from the passengers and operators' point of view uh, why they would be less than happy with that. Obviously, Andy, I, I do you, have a. I was going to say, Andy, oh, you fly for a, for a sort of a large European airline. How do you think this will affect um, you guys much? Well, I've got an issue with the reporting on this because Airways charges are not based on per flight. It's based on the maximum takeoff weight of said aircraft. So, take an A380, their airway charges are significantly more than a 737 or uh, an A320. In fact, a lot of airlines, um, we certainly do it, Our, the A320 is certified by Airbus to a max takeoff weight of 77 tonne. And we actually artificially reduce this on the paperwork and get the aircraft recertified at a lower weight to pay lower charges. Um, and I know Ryanair do that as well and a few others. So if you use an aircraft, say a high-density 320 on mainly domestic routes where you're never going to need 77 tonnes, then they actually reduce the max takeoff weight to save on airways charges. So the, the reporting's a bit dodge here. It would be nice to know what the price per ton has changed by um but well everything's gone up in cost isn't it and everybody's got things to cover and energy bills going up and Nats must use a lot of energy for radar services and stuff like that so yeah it's a bit of a difficult one to avoid i do agree though we pay too many taxes on aviation in this country but don't you think though, when you look online, if you could look at the uh, the Skyscanner and the various other sites where you can get flights from, there are still some ridiculously cheap flights out there with with airlines. Yeah, yeah, you can still get some very cheap flights. I was mm. looking yesterday um, for my cousin on my staff travel, uh, Gatwick to um, Belfast City, seventeen pounds. Cool. One way. <laughs> I don't even know how you make money. On how that. could you make money? I was going to say that's that's. I mean, imagine if you'd done that in the car. What your fuel costs would be? Yeah, crazy, crazy. But it is a service that needs paying for, and with everything that's been happening at Nats, um, I do hope the extra money is actually being used to improve systems. Yes, from from a pilot's point of view, lot from yourself. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from there, Andy. Yeah, just for everyone, just so that the system actually works. And also increase controller cover as well, because uh, the tower at Gatwick, that's run by Nats, and they are suffering big time with lack of controllers. Yes, because they had to reduce capacity, didn't they, a couple of weeks ago to handle that situation. Yeah. Yeah, and that's going to be going on for a while, really, until it can get uh, some more controllers. And of course, controllers not a an overnight thing. It takes a long time to train them up. Hmm. So, Nev, moving on to the next story, and uh, good news if you love uh, donuts. Uh, yes. Um, well, um, th th <laughs> the 
we were just talking about maximum takeoff weights uh, on flightglobal.com. Uh, it says EASA indicates the A350-1000 takeoff weight is going to be hiked to 322 tons. Um, which compared to what you were just talking about with the 77 tonne on a 320 is a quantum leap, isn't it? Um, Airbus appears to have hiked the maximum takeoff weight for the A350-1000 to 322 tonnes, regulatory documents indicate. The airframers' documentation for the twin jets lists the maximum takeoff weight of the Dash 1000's highest weight variant at 319 tonnes. Uh, but uh, the European Union Aviation Safety Agency revised its type certificate data on the 25th of October to include a 322 tonne takeoff weight. Uh, EASA also lists unchanged maximum landing and maximum zero fuel weights of 236 tonnes and 223 tonnes respectively. Considering this is on flightglobal.com, this next statement is extraordinary. <laughs> Higher takeoff weights enable the aircraft to transport a greater payload over a longer range. I wouldn't have guessed that, Flight Global. Amazing. Uh, the airframer offered the 319-tonne variant of the Dash 1000 to Qantas for its planned Project Sunrise long-haul services to Australia from London and New York. Uh, Airbus is also capitalising on the Dash 1000 airframe to support development of its new A350 freighter, for which it has declared a maximum takeoff weight of 319 tonnes. Well, that's substantial, isn't it? I must say, um, the 350 is one of my favourite aircraft at the moment. Um, the 350-900 that Finnair operates, uh, that I've been using to go to and from Helsinki, and the 350-1000 that Carlos and I went on to Dubai. Um, absolutely superb aircraft. And if they can get some more range out of it and get some more, um, you know, um, maximum takeoff weight certification then that is a good thing, isn't it? And yeah, I'm hoping it's to carry more fuel. Yes. Yes. Because yes. that line about high takeoff weights enable the aircraft to transport a greater payload over a longer range, hmm, not exactly right. Uh, no, I was just, <laughs> that's why I mentioned it. I thought on yeah. flight global, you think, kind of think they might have covered a bit more than just that bit of it, but... Yeah. Um, do, you, so. do, you, do you not think, oh guys, that, that Airbus are a bit late to the game with um, with a with a long, you know, a, a, a wide body freighter such as the three hundred and fifty? Because the triple seven is pretty much dominating the freighter market right now. Would you say? Yeah, but that, the triple seven freighter was the only real twin engine option for operators, and now that there's the option for the three hundred and fifty, especially for airlines that fly a lot of Airbus, then you know, the cross-crew qualification course is a week, 10 days, from a 320 to a 350. So you can fly both types. So you could be flying short-haul, then passenger 350, and then long-haul cargo as well for one set of crew. I think it's a pretty good idea. I think some airlines will take it. I hope they do. Sort of get a bit more of an option for airlines, I think, when it comes to... Because some, um, some of the big passenger carriers who do have... A, a freight side of them uh, generally tend to, to be stick to what they've got, don't they? On the commercial side, 777s, they'll have 777s on the freight side. Like I think yeah. Emirates, Emirates, I think, have all... Um, I think theirs are 777s, aren't they, the freighters? But then they do have a mixed fleet, though, Boeing and Airbus. But, um, yeah, perhaps that Nev, perhaps BA will go back into the um, freight hauling business again. Oh, I don't know about that. Um... 
I think what they need to have a serious look at is what the triple seven replacement is is going to be oh, as well. Yes, yeah. On the passenger side of things, they've got some options out there at the moment. But um, yeah, freight obviously you know carrying freight within air within passenger aircraft is is one thing, but uh, freighters on their own, I, I that that's not their business really. I think the uh, the UPS is the FedEx and the, the DHLs. That, that's that's what they do best, isn't it? Really? They, they tried it, didn't they, with global global supply solutions as a separate entity? Yeah, with Atlas, I think it was, and it didn't really work out for them, especially when the pandemic no. came along. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Dirks actually asking quite a good question in the chat room, guys. He's saying um, about the payload difference between the three hundred and fifty freighter compared to the triple seven freighter. Well, exactly. That, that's yeah. that's going to be the, the making of it. If it can carry something similar or more, then it'll probably get a lot of business. Hmm. Now, moving on to the next story. Andy, you've got this one. And yes. I would love to hear your thoughts on this at the end, especially yeah. as a commercial pilot. So this comes from multiple sources, uh, BBC, Sky, Alaska Air itself. Uh, this is uh, the story that happened this week. Off-duty pilot Joseph Emerson accused of trying to crash Alaskan Airlines flight. An off-duty pilot who allegedly tried to shut down a plane's engines during a flight told police after his arrest he had taken psychedelic mushrooms for the first time, prosecutors say. Joseph David Emerson, an Alaskan Airlines pilot, was arrested in uh, Oregon on Sunday night and charged with 83 state counts of attempted murder and a single count of endangering an aircraft. The flight crew reported he had tried to shut down the engines on a Horizon Air Embraer ERJ-175 flight from Everett, Washington State to San Francisco, California, while riding in the extra seat in the cockpit. The federal charges also say he tried to grab the handle of an emergency exit after being restrained. Horizon Air Flight uh, 2059 was diverted to Portland, where the sorry, where plane carrying more than 80 people landed safely, and the 44-year-old suspect was detained by police. The flight was en route at 31,000 feet when the incident occurred. A federal charge of interfering with the flight crew was made public on Tuesday, which said Emerson made casual conversation with the captain and first officer before trying to grab two red handles that would have activated the plane's fire suppression system and cut fuel to its engines. According to court documents, the off-duty pilot admitted to police that he pulled both fire handles and stated he had not slept for about 40 hours, feeling dehydrated and tired. State court documents say Emerson had taken magic mushrooms about 48 hours before the incident. According to testimonies by witnesses and the off-duty pilot, everything was okay during the initial stages of the flight. Then the off-duty pilot said several times he was not feeling okay, threw his headset across the cockpit and subsequently pulled both fire handles down, believing he was dreaming and wanted to wake up. The two pilots on duty subdued the off-duty pilot, physically engaging with him for about 25 to 30 seconds before the off-duty pilot stopped resisting. About 90 seconds elapsed between the first I'm not okay and the off-duty pilot leaving the cockpit. Flight attendants reported the off-duty pilot walked to the rear of the aircraft and told them he had just been thrown out of the cockpit and needed to be handcuffed right now or it's going to be bad. Flight attendants did restrain him and the flight attendants observed him using his mobile phone texting he had just endangered 84 lives including his own. Uh, flight attendant seated a restrained Emerson in the aft jump seat, but as the plane uh, descended, he tried to grab the emergency exit handle, according to prosecutors. They added that a flight attendant stopped him by placing her hands on top of his. 
According to the affidavit, Emerson asked if he could waive his right to an attorney at the Port of Portland Police Department and said, I'm admitting to what I did. I'm not fighting any charges you want to bring against me, guys. Emerson, through his lawyer, has pleaded not guilty to all charges. So there we go. Uh, and this guy, Captain Emerson, joined the Alaskan Air Group as a Horizon First Officer back in 2001. So he's, uh, he's been doing it a while. In June 2012, he left and joined Virgin America and then became an Alaskan Airlines First Officer following the uh, Alaskan's acquisition of Virgin as well. And then he became uh, an Alaskan captain in 2019. And it says here that he's never basically had any issues before. Hmm. So, yeah. Wow. Bit of a shock story when this so first So many broke. questions here. Yeah. Uh, here, yeah. Here's, here's my first question. Now, it's not an A320, so it's an E175, isn't it? Yeah. I think the flight deck crew did a phenomenal job to restrain him, bearing in mind he's in the jump seat. Now, obviously, the, the cockpit size of a embryo is considerably smaller than an Airbus. Mm. But bearing mm. in mind that he would be behind them, and maybe slightly elevated. I, I don't know the, the, the layout there. They did a phenomenal job to actually restrain him at all under those. Yeah, a, ju a jump seat's normally elevated because it's mainly designed for um, line checks, etc. So you can see over and what's happening. So it probably would have been elevated. But yeah, trying to turn around in those seats in any aircraft and talk to somebody's hard work, let alone using your arms and trying to restrain somebody. But I guess the adrenaline kicked in as well for both the pilots. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Um, I don't actually... This, this must be classed as a level four uh, incident. So there are four levels um, that IKO have defined. So level one is just a disruptive passenger getting mouthy. Mm. Uh, level two is physically abusive behaviour. Then level three is life-threatening behaviour. And then level four is an attempt or actual breach of the flight crew compartment. I mean, he's already in there. Um, so, yeah, it's really serious, and I'm very surprised. It doesn't say anywhere if he actually did pull the handles. He stated he did, but if he did pull the handles, then I'm sure both engines would have shut down. Now, there is, <clears throat> when it comes to reciprocal arrangements for flight deck, for, sorry, for flight deck um, jump seat uh, operations, you've got that in your airline, I guess, Andy, and, and you no. allow other crews to um use the jump seat no europe's a very different world yeah. um in america there's all sorts of bit off-duty pilots can use other airlines and stuff like that in europe it's a no-go if you're not an employee or being specifically um given access to the flight deck of that flight of that particular flight it's no I didn't know that. Interesting. Because I was going to follow it up and saying, uh, let's say they were out. I mean, as the operating captain, you know, the editor's decision is final and he can yes. decide whether whoever comes on the, on the flight deck, even with the right credentials, uh, if he doesn't like the look of them or he doesn't have to give a reason for uh, not allowing them on in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah, we could do that. We quite often have jump seat rides from people from other parts of the company. The CAA, although I'd love to see how well it would go down if I refused the CAA to come and travel on board. Um, quite oh, often what, get air traffic controllers well, why, as well. Why don't you try that out, uh, Andy? I'll be, I'll be <laughs> right behind you. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I quite like my job, so um, <laughs> I'd have to come up with a really good reason. No, Nev, I know Armando is uh, he's now joining us. How welcome, uh, Armando. He's popped in. He's had a busy day, bless him, but he has joined us now on the show. So welcome, Armando. Good to see you. 
Hello, guys. It's good to see you. I've been uh, listening on in the background here for the last couple minutes talking about the uh, Alaska Horizon uh, incident. Do, do you guys think, right, that since this incident happened this week, obviously it, it is serious what happened. Do you think this will have repercussions now in regards to not, well, not so much in Europe, because Andy, Andy said it doesn't happen here in Europe, but in the well, sorry, US... I was, I was, I've been corrected by Aaron there. I, I'm talking UK, definitely not. It's not allowed by oh, the UK, Department for UK. Transport. But, but Europe, some other airlines might be different. But do you think this will have repercussions now for, for jump seat pilots or crew in, going forward to the future now, where they'll, they'll, they'll put a stop to having um, you know, jump seat riders in, in the aircraft? Yeah, I don't know if they'll put a stop to it, but it's certainly going to result in some kind of rule changes or policy changes. Um, jump seating for us is a, um, it's a privilege, not a right, but you can pretty much jump seat on any airline. Uh, you know, I was at a small part 135 uh, scheduled operation, which was code share with a larger airline. And even we had jump seat privileges on all the major airlines, Delta, United, American, uh, Southwest, even some international airlines we could, we could jump seat on. Um, it is, it is an essential program that is very, uh, fragile, I would say, here in the U.S., right? So when you are when you are jump seating on another airline, um, which this individual, they're part of the same family, Horizon and Alaska Airlines, and uh, this was on Horizon Airlines. He the the pilot had gone to Alaska Airlines, but he had a career in Horizon, kind of through a flow program. But um, the for us it's it's really important this is one of the ways that you can get to work right so will it will the program go away no it, it can't because um commuting pilots which are thousands there's thousands of pilots that don't live in base all rely on being able to get into the jump seat and you know obviously most of us would like a seat in the back but with oversold flights and sometimes you have cabin crew and flight attendants also trying to get uh, from A to B, right? Because they're not living in base. Um, it is. This is such an integral program, but it's but it's very fragile. It's uh, very much a handshake agreement. I mean, there's policies, but it's a handshake agreement between your airline and the and the airline on which you are commuting or jump seating, and uh, you are expected to behave in the most. Um, respectable manner because you are not only representing your airline to those pilots in that flight crew, but also the people in the back don't know the difference, right? They see pilots up front, they see pilots in uniform. Um, so when you step out of the jump seat and into the, the back or you're boarding or during the boarding process, you know, we don't, we don't just jump right into the jump seat because there's checks going on. There's a manifest that are being passed up. The, the cabin crew is, doing their communication with the pilots. So you're just kind of trying to stay out of the way as a jump seater. But those boarding passengers see a pilot in uniform and they don't know the difference between the gold stripes and the silver stripes. And, um, you know, it, it's just, uh, it's just a, such a fragile program, but it, but it, as John said in the chat room, it is, it's an integral part of us being able to get to work. Do you, do you think it's a good idea for everybody to be jump seating everywhere to work and living thousands of miles away from work? I mean, unless the unless the airlines are willing to positive space 
everyone, which they're never going to do because that costs a lot of money or it takes away revenue there. That's kind of the only way it's been in our industry here in the U S for a long time. Your only other option is to have everybody live in base and um, that's just not feasible. Okay. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I, I welcome your, your, your dissent, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, if, you, if you want the job, and it's a job you really want to do, then you've got to make some sacrifices as well. But this is going down a different road now. Um, yeah, I just think it's very interesting that I, I couldn't imagine living a long, long, long way away from work. Well, sometimes you don't have a choice. I, I live in Charlotte, and I was uh, Pittsburgh-based for six months, and they said, you know what, you're going to move to Atlanta. Now you're Atlanta-based. Okay, I guess I'm Atlanta based. And yeah, the I mean, only way. so if if they have the op if they have the option just to tell you you're going over there, then all right, fair enough. Then you need to do it. Whereas that wouldn't happen in in the UK. Yeah, I guess it's just a matter of geography, right? Because our our hubs are so far apart that with fleet changes, seniority changes, um, yeah, it'd be it'd be almost impossible to just get hired on and live in base. Excellent. See, this is why I'm glad Armando's joined us now. Even more, even more great uh, chat now with the two pilots here, banter backwards and forwards. <laughs> John Jester says he jump seats across the ocean to get to work. John, actually, or anybody about this, because if you think, I mean, we all talk about duty time and actually time of operating the aircraft. If you've done quite a long hop even to get to work before you operate the aircraft, does that is that included in what is considered your duty time or, or does your duty time only start when you get into the you know, the crew briefing room or, or on the aircraft? Yeah, no, here in the US, um, and it's different for a part 121 airline and a part 135 scheduled airline. Um, part 121 airlines actually have, I, I believe it's part 117 crew rest, uh, regulations. And it's a little bit more strict, but commuting time is not duty time. Um, and if, if they are deadheading you, so there's a difference between commuting and deadheading. Deadheading is the company is moving you from A to B. Deadheading time is duty time, but commuting time is, uh, is, is entirely on your own. It's not part of duty time. Now, there are also rules if you're commuting, um, you can't just, let's say I, uh, my duty on time for my shift is noon. Well, I can't just jump on the 10.30 flight from Charlotte to Atlanta. Um, most airlines have either a two or a three flight rule where you need to, you need to have at least three flights before your, your duty. So for me, I would have to know how many, I'm just gonna use, um, let's say notionally I worked for Delta. So, uh, Delta and let's say I was based in Atlanta. So I would I would know how many Delta Airlines flights there are from Charlotte to Atlanta before my noon duty on time. And I would need to know how many uh, American Airlines flights there are from Charlotte to Atlanta. And then I would have to have three options. And I, had, I have to try to get on that first of the three to get to work. So that's probably a eight o'clock, 7.30 a.m. flight. Uh, I have more priority on my own airline. So let's say if I was at Delta, then I would have priority boarding or priority jump seat on Delta. But Delta only has two, three flights a day. American has 
four flights a day, then I can try to go over to American and jump seat on their airplane. And that's my second option. At that point, if I don't make the second option, I need to call my chief pilot and say, hey, um, you know, I'm trying to get on. Uh, haven't had luck on the first two. Um, here's my third option. And at that point, they're probably starting to work a reserve pilot just in case you don't get on that flight. And that's kind of how it goes. You don't get a, you, there's not an unlimited number of, hey, I tried it and there are three flights and I just didn't make it to work. That's kind of like what Andy's saying is, it's not unlimited. You need to have a plan. Um, you can probably do that two, three times where you say, hey, I tried three flights and it's just the wet, the weather or whatever. But if it's a consistent thing, they're going to say, this isn't working out for us. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's kind of how the commuting world goes. To, to me, it sounds the thought of commuting, then going and operating straight away. I just, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that personally. I'd, I'd make sure I was there the night before, even if it was a lunchtime yeah. departure the next day. Um, but I guess that's my own limits. Well, no, and, and it depends on the day you're planning, right? So Captain Jeff is, you know, very senior. He's probably only planning on flying one leg, maybe two for that mm -hmm. day, right? So he can commute somewhere or deadhead somewhere even if, and then fly two legs and then he's done for the day and he gets 20 hours rest at his next destination. Lovely. Yeah. But <laughs> Loving Captain Cruise in the chat room. <laughs> With the, uh, the oh. comment, yeah, Armando's just in it as well. <laughs> yes, there they are. They're always... But uh, Captain Cruz just, uh, just says in the chat room as well, Armando, he says, anyone notice what looks like the cutest dog in the world in the background? Okay, I'm sad yep. to sleep. They are pretty cute. See? You said her name. Now she's here. Oh. Hello. She's also, she also commutes to work. <laughs> so, Armando, while you're there, you have got the next story all in regards to uh, some, uh, some, well, some tail dragon. Holy moly, jumping right into it. Uh, let's see. Um, oh, this was all over the uh, the internet, apparently. Aerotime, AirLive, Flight Radar 24. A Falcon 2000 LX a corporate jet operated by a Turkish firm, Neural Holdings. Uh, registra registrations Tango, Charlie, Sierra, Golf, Oscar. Appeared to have tipped back on its tail while parked at Riyadh Airport. Uh, that was in Saudi Arabia. The incident took place after the aircraft was parked on the ramp with fuel below the limit and exposed to strong winds. Okay, that'll do it. Uh, the same day, a JetBlue Airbus A321 suffered a, well, I don't know if I would call it a major mishap, but at least a mishap at New York's JFK with the aircraft also tipping back on its tail. That reg aircraft, uh, registration November 959 Juliet Bravo, had arrived from Bridgetown, and uh, it was parked at JFK there and it tipped on its tail as you can see there in the pictures that Carlos is putting up. According to the reports, the aircraft was being either unloaded or loaded, no kidding, and the aircraft tipped backwards, which they say could have. I'm going to go ahead and confirm it was due to poor weight distribution. Um, and then the, you know, they still haven't said what the extent of the damage is. Yeah, bad form. Um, usually there's mitigation. I think uh, most airlines have a, a load plan for this kind of thing and to avoid it. So something must have gone wrong. So, it, all, it all depends on if it was being loaded or unloaded. 
Yeah, you think I don't know. You this is your kind of airplane, not not mine. So. Yeah, uh, Airbus have a procedure that we keep the ADI RS is switched on until all passengers are off, especially on a twenty one, so we can actually see if the aircraft started to tip. Um, <laughs> and at one, once the nose audio gets to a certain extension, we'll also get a warning with a nose audio fault. There's a big warning that this is looking like it might tip. Uh, and at that point, we'd stop all passenger movement, all baggage, everything, and try and work out where the problem is. This is why um, I sit in 1A, obviously, to keep, uh, keep, keep the, the nose down. Yeah. yeah, that's why I, I sit in uh, seat zero here, keep the nose really down. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I've, I've had it before where it's pinged about the nose audio, and I've been busy doing things, and I've looked at the PFD, and the nose is starting to rise through about a degree and a half. And you're like, oh, we've got, to, we've got to do something about this. Because, again, if depending on the baggage handlers, if they're used to unloading the front first, then they just dive in and start doing it. And, all, of course, if you're on a jet bridge, no rear steps, all the weight's yeah. at the back of the aircraft then, and it just gently starts to tip backwards. And then you've got to do something about it quickly. Yeah, I've seen um, more and more jet bridges that actually have a uh, some kind of sensor that sits under the door. And I think it's for the opposite. I think it's for the, the jet bridge to go down if there's weight compressing that. Well, yeah. I was on a jet bridge uh, the other night, uh, and the door was it was all perfectly in line. And by the time the first front load of the passenger got off, I actually went and outside, and the step down was about a foot. The, the door was <laughs> raised by about a foot. So I said, like, well, let's just stop. Let's reposition the, the bridge here, and let's just also check yeah. what's going on with unloading. Because it's quite obvious when it starts to occur. Wow, well, I can only imagine, especially with something like an A three twenty one, right? That's yeah, that's a twenty one. You've got to be really careful with. Well, we'll classic... find out on Sunday at Las Palmas when they unload yeah. three twenty one. We'll see. <laughs> see what happens. Nev, you should just run back and forth between the front and the back and see if it makes a, a change. And it it's a stretch that's right to the limit of that fuselage length and where the gear is and stuff so it's it's right on the edge i guess yeah, and I'm it's guessing for... the tile dragger armando you don't have this issue <clears throat> yeah they should have just had me up front i can taxi it that way it's fine you just gotta look off to the side <laughs> open the window and look off the side now nev you have got uh, the next story on the list yeah, it's on the, the local.de, and it says that German airline Lufthansa said on Wednesday that it would launch a regional carrier next year to bolster its short-haul service in Europe whilst cutting costs. Another uh, Lufthansa airline? Hmm? Another Lufthansa airline? Another one, yes, exactly. Uh, well, Lufthansa's group, newly established City Airlines, will start flight operations in the summer of 2024, it said in a statement, adding that it had received received regulatory approval this June in order to launch. Uh, City Airlines will serve the Munich and Frankfurt hubs and thus, thus offer feeder flights for Lufthansa's long-haul operations likely from July 2024. The segment had until now been served by Lufthansa's City Line, a unit that had long been criticised by management as too costly. The two subsidiaries will continue to operate in parallel, the company says. Lufthansa said it will begin recruiting pilots and cabin crew staff next month, with CityLine staff explicitly invited to apply. 
Media reports said former staff of low-cost carrier German ring, wings who were laid off in 2020 could also represent a significant pool of applicants. Uh, Labour representatives have accused Lufthansa of manoeuvring to slash personnel costs with Pilots Union VC in August saying airlines were always creating new operating subsidiaries to circumvent or reduce salary conditions. That is a very good point and I don't know I have any facts around that but that is an interesting point that I've not considered until I looked at this story I must say. Yeah especially a big legacy airline like Lufthansa is always looking for ways to get around uh, union agreements. Set up a new company, makes it easier. But also I wonder, um, presumably this is intra-Europe uh, flights, but I'm only thinking for you flying within Germany, the, the train service is so good, um, you might not want to be doing much of that, but nonetheless, if, they're, if they can make it work and you know, they're paying the crews properly, then fair enough. But, um, yeah, it, it does seem an odd move, I must say. Yeah. Very odd. Andy, you have yes. got the next story, and uh, it's all about uh, dings. Yes, uh, this is from the CNN. Uh, Houston Airport had to ground all flights after a private jet departed without permission and collided with another jet, the FAA says. Um, an airport in Houston temporarily grounded all flights on Tuesday after two private jets collided on its tarmac, officials said. Uh, the incident took place around 3.30pm when a twin-engine jet departed without permission from William P. Hobby Airport runway and collided with another twin-engine jet that was landing on the runway, according to the FAA. No injuries were reported in the collision and it's unclear how many people were on board either aircraft. The departing plane was identified as a Hawker h 25 be a corporate aircraft model, while the arriving flight was a Cessna uh, C-510 business jet, according to the FAA. The two private planes uh, clipped their wings as they were moving on the airfield, the airport said in a post on uh, X, or Twitter, or whatever you want to call it. The airport remained under a ground stop while crews worked to remove debris, uh, the post said. The airport announced the debris had been cleared just after 7pm and flight operations were restored. Um, I don't know if you've got that picture there, Carlos, of the um, winglet removed. Yeah. But I did also. I also heard the uh, ATC audio for this uh, this week, and uh, the guy who got hit was pretty hacked off. I don't know if you've heard it. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I heard it. it. Yes, yeah. Was, was he rather annoyed? Yeah, I think the airport was asking him to do something. He's gone. No, no, we've been hit. I'm not moving. Not happening. Ow. And I'll be pretty annoyed. It's going to ruin your day, isn't it? Yes. But my question is, what, what happened to the other aircraft? Were, were, well, did, did they find them? The thing is that the I do get the impression, and Armando, I'm sure you'll jump in here, but um, the, the, the sort of machine gun staccato clearances and, and aircraft movements, generally the ATC... Uh, give to aircraft very very few occasions have I ever heard uh, an airline or, or an aircraft going no we're not going to do that uh, I, there's one occasion where there was a, a big fog situation in one of the airports I seem to remember where there was um, the ATC were issuing instructions left right and centre to people um, and they didn't actually know where they were on the airfield because they couldn't see them from the tower um, but 
I do worry about this thing and that there's I know there's more aircraft movements than ever but it, it does concern me that um, these um, these sorts of movements are, are just it's it's a a moment waiting to happen isn't it yeah you're not wrong I agree with you guys actually um, <laughs> we are, I always think of Captain Nick because Captain Nick has a special hatred for American uh, procedures. Um, the pace at which some of these communications happen, especially at some of these bu busy airports. Um, Houston Hobby isn't really a, a big hub airport per se, but you still have the situations, which is actually very common, where our airports are so big that different runways will have different tower frequencies, and then you have a ground west, ground east, ground north. Um, so it is entirely possible that all these airplanes are on different frequencies. And I know the article says that the, I guess the Hawker took off without permission. Um, but we'll see. I, you know, I, I have actually not heard the audio on this. Just going to pop oh. the pictures back up there. Yeah, I mean, it looks like they missed each other or I guess they hit each other by just by the skin of their teeth. But this, uh, you know, another three feet in either direction, and this would have been a, a catastrophic uh, incident because especially a, an aircraft taken off, you know, we've talked actually with Andy on the show, we've talked about uh, low speed rejects, high speed rejects. Like you, once you're past 80 knots, it's hard to stop that airplane, even if something comes out in front of you like that, another jet taxiing um, or a vehicle. Ugh, it's hard to stop that airplane. Um, you don't have much time to weigh up the options. No, I, th I mean, I don't know what it is in the Airbus for for the Hawker. 100 knots, yeah. It's on the Airbus, yeah. That, that's what's classed as the high-speed regime above 100. Yeah, for us, it's 80 knots because our power to weight ratio it's only about 22 seconds from power on to liftoff so it's uh it's very quick that it all happens yeah i would say though it would be really helpful if the americans based their radio telephony on doc 942 the ico document you should send that to the faa armando just to get some standardization. <laughs> uh, you know, when I, th how many times do I get to say this? But when Matt <laughs> was flying with me, I got to explain to him exactly that. How when we were flying and we were on an IFR flight plan, I think we're at 9,000 feet in the 206. And he got to experience how lackadaisical our communications are. There was entire conversations happening on the radio. Sure, it was a little slow, but um, I think M Matt, of all people now, has gotten to experience, <laughs> wow, there's a huge difference in the standardization uh, of, of communications here. <laughs> I, again, I, I actually don't disagree with you. I, you know, I, and, and it, Matt it and I would were, help a lot. Yeah, if you're, if you're not a native speaker of English, the, it is it's tough it's tough to infer nuances that aren't clear-cut directions from atc so well he's a, a, a another sideline here he's a thing for you from airbus 
they have specific language they use in manuals so that everybody, even if English is your third, fourth language, can understand what the manual is trying to say. And they rewrite things. For us English speakers, I look at some of them and go, that is terrible English, but they've actually explained to me, no, we write it that way so that non-native English speakers can actually understand it. And that's the whole point in ICAO. I'll say it again, 9432. It's one all Americans <laughs> should read. Um, that it, it gets everything standardized. So like you say, non-native speakers can sort of cobble it together and get the idea. I think that's going to be the show title. You know, to fly over there, to fly over there in the UK, I had to take the uh, air law test and the RT test. It yeah, was, that's right. Cap 413. There's another manual for you. Uh, I, I, I chuckled my way through it. Oh, you, <laughs> oh, you Brits, you're so <laughs> structured. <laughs> and on that note, Armando, um, I think you, uh, you've got the next story. Uh, okay, I think this is a flight simulator story. Uh, Golden Age Simulations, uh, sorry, it's from fselite.net. Uh, Golden Age Simulations, previewing upcoming Boeing Stearman Model 75. They're all Model 75s. Um, for aviation enthusiasts, and I would say for simulator enthusiasts, the Stearman holds a special place. I actually just saw one today um, at the top of the lineup for legendary aircraft. The iconic open cockpit biplane uh, was used as a trainer during the Second World War. We've talked plenty about the Boeing Stearman here. Over 10,000 Stearmans were built. After the war, thousands of them uh, were in surplus and were, I think, readily available for, you could probably pick one up for a couple hundred dollars after the war. Uh, and now, nowadays, they're probably, I don't know, 200,000, so still uh, on the low end of airplane prices. But uh, over a thousand of them are still flying today. So the flight simulator folks, Golden Age Simulations, which have been building aftermarket aircraft for the simulators for a long time, are adding a couple of Stearman variants for both uh, flight simulator and P3D. It's a 1920s design Stearman C3, a larger Stearman Model 4, uh, a, and the iconic Model 75 Stearman with 300 and 450 horsepower. I would love to see if you can note the difference in a flight simulator between the 300 and the 450. Um, they're making different uh, versions on floats, crop duster. There's an aerobatic version. They actually previewed this Stearman on YouTube. And Carlos showed some pictures there. And um, yeah, this is a pretty cool. If you get a chance, go watch the video. I don't think we have the video, right, Carlos? It's got a long video. It's a really good video. It's about 20 minutes long, I think it's on YouTube. But it's, it's a really good video oh, if you yeah. get the chance to go and see it. And they've done a really good job, I think. Yeah, I, I got to admit, I have Microsoft Flight Simulator, and I bought an aftermarket Stearman just to uh, get ready for flying in the hats and the biplane. So they're pretty cool. And, you know, with the visuals nowadays, I think it's pretty neat. You know, if you don't if you don't fly a full scale aircraft or you don't have the ability to fly, uh, the visuals are so good on Microsoft Flight Simulator that you could get into a Stearman open cockpit and fly around your hometown or some of the sites around the globe because they they do points of interest on Microsoft Flight Simulator. Um, you know, kind of on arcade mode almost. I think I think we've landed on Microsoft Flight Simulator is more fun with the visuals and everything and uh, x-plane is more realistic if you want to actually practice 
you know, manoeuvres and mm. instrument procedures and things like but that. But we did do, not so long ago, done a special flight sim special, didn't we, for the show? But I can't remember where, how long ago that was. That was a month ago. Yeah, I, think ago yeah. I think we probably had 12 or 13 people listen to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, it's... Uh, it's good. I'm, I'm really good. I've, I've, I have moved over to Microsoft Flight Sim myself in the last um, couple of weeks and starting to get used to it. It's, it's a big change from X-Plane, there's no doubt about that. But, uh, yeah, it's it good. Is prettier. It's, 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 yeah, it's, the, the scenery is definitely, definitely better. But, um, yeah. So, next story. And uh, I can still remember my first solo flight because it was sprung on me by my flight instructor um, when I wasn't expecting it. But this is one thing you probably shouldn't do if you don't get allowed to go solo when you want to go solo it comes from miamiherald.com and uh, i think this happened over your neck of the woods sort of in the u.s armando and the uh, headline student pilot disables 10 planes after being denied his solo flight uh, florida police have said a 23 year old flight student is accused of sabotaging 10 aircraft at a florida airport after he was denied a solo flight according to investigators it happened at treasure coast flight school an international piloting school at witham field airport in stewart and the martin county sheriff's office said in a news release uh, that stewart is about 100 miles north of miami I'm sure Armando's probably flown in there. Uh, the student uh, became angry after school instructors would not allow him to take a solo flight, the officer said. Uh, school officials called the sheriff's office when they said they saw the student on video going from plane to plane causing damage to each of the aircraft. Items such as the throttles were damaged and 10 aircraft at the school remained grounded while mechanics determined the extent of damage the sheriff's office said. Martin County Sheriff William Schneider said that something terrible could have happened. The damage to the planes had not been discovered prior to takeoff, according to the station WPEC. Some of the damage would have impacted their ability to land, Schneider told the station, and the student who is, uh, who is visiting the United States was arrested at Witham Field and was charged with felony criminal mischief. Doesn't sound very serious. Uh, additional charges were possible, the Sheriff's Office have said, and Treasure Coast Flight School reports it is a full-service flight school that trains pilots from all around the world using certif uh, certifications required for specific uh, nations or regions. Armando, <laughs> what's going on here? Well, I guess we did talk about mental health and flying in aviation a little bit ago. Uh, I'm glad we caught it now and not later down the road. Um, this actually happens more than you think, unfortunately. Well, uh, student pilots, you know, they get told this isn't for you. They break into flight schools. We had that. We had this happen uh, three years ago here in Charlotte at one of my local flight schools. And uh, a young man, probably 17, 18 years old, I think, broke in to the hangar and, and caused some damage to the airplane. Um, I think in his, in that case, it was he deflated the tires and then, um, I don't know, did something with the throttle also because, you know, they're on a GA airplane. They're just little little aluminum rods sticking out and you can bend them down pretty easy. And it, I mean, it's just expensive. It's a pain in the butt. And like, uh, unfortunately, this just really, really does happen. This, you know, right up there with people stealing general aviation airplanes, Drunk people breaking into airfields. We're not super secure here. At least they caught them, right? But a lot of our airfields are, are 
just part of the community and, and rarely fenced even. Mazus makes a good point in the chat room. He says he'll be saving a lot of money on future flying lessons. It's good. I like the gla glasses half full. All right. Fair, fair play to the instructor because he said no, or she, or they. Yeah. Um, and normally, as an instructor, if you get a gut feeling, even if everything else looks right, you've got a gut feeling, then the answer is no. Richard Adams uh, makes a good point in the chat room. He said um, he found it the other way, hard to believe it when the instructor sends you solo. You never 100% believe you're ready. I know it was the same with me. It was thrown on me. I wasn't expecting it at all. And, yeah, it's yeah, it's exciting. exciting if, you, if you ever believe you're ready in your head, then you're not. Yeah, that's massive. I, I, I never let's believe for one minute let's I was get that ready. Out. Let's get that on a T-shirt or something. Mugs. Yeah. More PTUK mugs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you think you're ready, then you're not. You have to have the mindset of I'm not ready for this or I'm not expecting it because then that is the right frame of mind to be in. What are your, what are your thoughts, Nev, you, on, this, uh, on this story? Um, I, yeah, I'm surprised that Armando has said that this, happens, this sort of thing happens more than you would realise. And, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a big moment, clearly. Um, but, yeah, just, well, as bad as this was, it could have been a whole lot worse. If you can imagine the consequences of all that, um, well, yeah, we need the APG. Yeehaw! Because they're all yes. just a bunch of cowboys. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, Nev, moving on. You have got um, the final story in the commercial news this week, and it is a, a really nice, important story. Well, let's talk about proper aviation. Finally, uh, it's on AutoEvolution.com. It says Concorde made its final flight from New York's JFK airport across the Atlantic to London's Heathrow airport 20 years ago this week when Concorde's massive landing gear arrangement came to its final stop at Heathrow on that afternoon it marked the end of an era in commercial aviation wherein the virtues of raw speed hadn't yet been usurped in the airliner space in favour of more fuel efficient aircraft in the 21st century. In a time before the world was far more concerned about conserving every last drop of petrochemical fuel, Concorde was its crown jewel, its beacon on the hill, the very pinnacle of civil aerospace technology. As the last batch of Concorde still in service made low altitude passes over Birmingham, Belfast, Manchester, Edinburgh and Cardiff in the week leading up to its retirement, crowds from across the UK pointed their cameras skyward in hopes uh, of catching one last glimpse of the jet before its retirement. A handful of further flights did take place in late October through early November 2003 as the remaining Concorde jets transported themselves to their final resting place in museums across the US and Europe but never again after October the 24th would the plane carry high fare paying passengers. In the case of Concorde's final flight over North America from JFK to Boeing Field in Seattle the, the jet smashed civil transcontinental records from coast to coast by being given permission to go supersonic between the Canadian provinces of Quebec and Alberta. In just three hours and 55 minutes, Concorde exited the North American domestic market with a bang rather than a whimper. If you'd ask any AV geek at the time, they would have likely said it was the last time a civil supersonic transport would ever leave the tarmac. But in 2023 this year, a consortium of international aerospace contractors 
is set on proving this notion completely false. With particular emphasis on the Colorado-based Boom Technology Group, their overture SSC, SST proposal should make it off the ground. It would be the first time a civil airliner has ever come close to matching Concorde's flight performance. But even so, trouble sourcing engines for the jet has plagued the program recently. Um, and the question is, will Concorde remain the only relevant SST in service? And the answer remains to be seen. I'm not expecting um, another supersonic transport that's able to carry 100 passengers in my lifetime. Now, the Boom supersonic aircraft is not claiming that. But um, if you can think about what it does or what it did and when it was designed back in the late 50s and early 60s um, and the money that it made specifically for British Airways, less so for Air France, absolutely phenomenal track record, really. So, yeah, amazing. That it's until, we find a until we find a fuel source that is sustainable for an engine that can produce that amount of power, it's not going to happen. No. Did you get the chance, I know Nev, you flew on, on Concorde, but um, Andy and uh, Armando, did you get the chance to see it flying um, you know, during your careers and your flying experiences over in the US and obviously oh, in the when, UK? When it retired, I was 18. Ooh. I saw it many times. I was at university in Coventry, so I went up to Birmingham that uh, October 2003 to watch it come in and fly around. I was too skint to have a go. I never saw it. I don't remember seeing it ever playing. That's a shame. Nev, you are the you are the only one. Yes. And if it wasn't such a long time ago, I wish it was a bit more memorable, to be honest with you. But I just thought that sort of uh performance on takeoff was just normal uh but then as you can imagine when i then got on a 737-200 from luton uh to go to uh Mallorca, <laughs> from it was not as, as spectacular uh, but um yeah i'm very very privileged and very very fortunate that i was in the right place at the right time and i had people that knew people which is what it was all about so yeah i think I think it's best to think of its legacy as well. A lot of the technology from it has gone into modern Airbus aircraft and gone into Boeing as well. Fly-by-wire, Concorde was, yeah. had a lot of fly-by-wire systems. It was the trailblazer. It so also had one of the most, uh, at the time, that I remember the, the crew saying, one that one of the best um, auto-throttle systems going. It, it was able, you know, it had to Cat 3 auto-land capability. I mean, you know... Think of the technology um, and when the aircraft was designed. Phenomenal, really. Yeah. Now, Nev, it's the time of the show oh. where I'm going to press this button. Attention, this is the flight call for British Airways Flight 475. Paging for Mr. Your is waiting for you. Nev, what's going on? Well... I'm pleased to say that this week it's not Nev's terminal tantrum, but a couple of uh, people that I know have had operational difficulties, shall we say. Um, 
Well, this week uh, we're talking about reclining seat problems, uh, more Heathrow Terminal 5 passenger management problems, personal space, and having a bit of consideration for our fellow travelling companions. <laughs> now, this is from my work colleague. I'm not going to identify him by name, except I'm just going to call him the angry Welshman, because that's how we refer to him at the office sometimes, and, and with good, good reason too. Uh, he put on his Facebook uh, page, uh, he was just coming back from uh, Chester, so that's um, Pennsylvania, isn't it? Um, back to the UK. So he says, to the hideous and entitled woman sat behind me on the plane for the last seven hours, yes, the seat does recline a long way. No, it's not broken. Oh, you're going to ask the cabin attendant. Me, trying to get to sleep without success, as I can hear this from behind. Attendant, sorry, but no, the seat is not broken. That's how far it goes. Oh, you want to talk to someone more important? Okay, I will get the in-flight lead. In-flight lead. The passenger seat in front is working correctly. Meal service is finished. And the passenger in front, the angry Welshman, is uh, obviously wishing to sleep. There are several free seats in the middle of the cabin. You are very welcome to move. No, we can't move you up to business class. Do you want to move to a middle seat? No? Okay, then. Have a nice flight. The angry Welshman says, for the next 30 minutes, all I hear is her chuntering and complaining. Then she deliberately starts to bump the back of my seat hard every few minutes. I get up to go to the loo. She looks up and I can see she, uh, she is about to say something. Let's just say she wisely chose not to say anything once she saw the look on my face. That was a shame as I had a whole speech worked out for her. She wouldn't have liked it, but it would have cheered me up to deliver it. Uh, bumping and chuntering stopped for the rest of the flight, but needless to say, I didn't get much sleep. Oh dear. Well, later on, of course, he's, he's then flown back to Heathrow. He's got the shuttle uh, plane up to Manchester. And he's got all sorts of trouble there as well with trains and football match uh, supporters on there. And it goes on and on and on. So I do feel sorry for him. I, I've been on those flights, I must say, uh, in the past. Um, <laughs> and... It's my, my work colleague is, is known for having quite a, a, a moderate temper, but there are things that can rile him. And I have to take my hat off to him on this occasion because I don't think I would have um, demonstrated the restraint that he did on this occasion, I must say. Um, but then we hear from our good friend John Falk. Now, Carlos, you remember we met John yes. on the way to Jersey, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, John. Uh, we were on our A319 going to uh, the Jersey Air Show. Uh, he writes, uh, Dear Nev, I was in Jersey Tuesday to Thursday this week and finally managed to pick up the Stanford Tuck book you kindly sent to me. It looks an excellent read, and my thanks to you for arranging and posting it and for the rest of the team for the prize. And you're very welcome, John. Uh, he says, just add to a small bit to your T5 rants. On Tuesday, they had called Group 1 to come into the filing queue before the ticket scanners. OK with that? Group two and three were also called and were in a separate queue. No problem with that either. Next group were called and they filed into the two to three and rest the rest of them queuing area. No problem with that either. Then the BA person opened all of the tapes for the queues at the same time for everyone to go through all the ticket scanners. Uh, he says, though, to be fair, when I flew back, back last night from T5, the tape was only open for group one and then group two to three, etc., in the proper order. Consistency is not a feature at T5, he says. Well, he's dead right. Uh, and the, 
again, I just go back to the whole business of um, the comparison I make with what I'm getting on the plane at uh, Stockholm, Orlando, and they just say, group one, and that's it. Group one turns up, goes through, group two, and they hardly make any announcements at all. It's brilliant. How about that for a concept? And that brings to an end. Attention, this is the flight call for British Airways Flight 475. Mr. Your 1A is waiting for you. Well, thanks for that, Nev. <laughs> Always a joy uh, to hear what's going on in the world of, uh, of you and, uh, and other your friends as well now this is great we should uh, open up as a as a global thing i think nev well yes uh, a lot of my chums at work are, are flying quite regularly as well so uh i will not be short of content even if i'm not doing any flying so uh, we'll see how that goes now armando it's time to hand things over to you to introduce the next part of the show Yes, um, Carlos, while I am doing this, um, check the drive because I dropped some pictures in after the military. We can talk about the, uh, the biplane ferry flight home. Um, but in the meantime, we do still have time. Let's talk about some military. Believe it or not, actually, Carlos, you have this first story yeah, about I some do. gazelles. Yeah, this is this is sad news because I I see these guys or did see these guys a lot flying over my neck of the woods. It's a cool here. airplane, um, and you can definitely hear these these flying as well. They've got a very distinctive sound. But um, this one comes to us uh, from uh, Key Aero. Uh, well, key oh, key.aero this uh, comes to us from. And it's all about the gazelles. Three Westland gazelle AH-1s from the 665 Squadron, a component of the Army Air Corps, um, 5th Regiment, and the British Army's last frontline gazelle unit completed the type's final operational flight from Joint Helicopter Command Flying Station Aldergrove in Northern Ireland on the 23rd of October. The uh, diminutive gazelle, which entered operational service uh, with the uh, AAC on July the 6th back in 1974, will be formally withdrawn from use when the Army's helicopter conversion flight uh, training or 7th Regiment stands down at the Army Aviation Centre in Middle Wallop in Hampshire in uh, on October the 31st. It's not long now. Uh, the gazelle has served with all three of the UK's armed forces and was initially scheduled to be retired in 2024 when it would have seen it reach 50 years operational uh, British military service. But unfortunately, the type, its formal out-of-service date was brought forward. Using the uh, BAT or BAT flight call sign, the three Gazelle AH-1s took part in the type's final operational flight comprising with X-ray Zulu 320, uh, Zulu Alpha 772 and Zulu Alpha 775, departing Aldergrove at around 10 o'clock local time before performing a flyover over uh, the British Army's 38th Brigade at uh, Thiepel Barracks in Lisbon. Uh, Northern Ireland, and subsequently arriving at Barton Aerodrome in Manchester. 
uh, which was a regular stop-off location for crews transiting between Middlewallop and Aldergrove for fuel and lunch. After departing Barton's, the BAT flight carried out flypaths over a number of locations, including RAF Shawbury, uh, Shrewsbury, Hereford, Hertfordshire, and the Defence Equipment and Support in Abbey Wood, and then Bristol and the Army Headquarters in Andover and Hampshire before finally landing at Middle Wallop for another fuel stop. After approximately 40 minutes on the ground, the Gazelles departed for flypass over Saffron Aerospace in Farnham before arriving at their final destination of Vector Aerospace in Fleetlands in Hampshire. During its 49-year service, the British Gazelle fleet has supported domestic operations in the UK, Northern Ireland, as well as a variety of international missions, including Afghanistan, Belize, Bosnia, Canada, Cyprus, the Falkland Islands, Germany, Hong Kong, Iraq, Kenya, Kosovo, and Sierra Leone. Well, all I can say is, Armando, it's a shame they didn't just let it go on for another year to round it off to 50. I know, right? This is this is such a cooler plan. It's been around. It's almost as recognizable as the Huey. I think the Gazelle, you know, I knew when I was a kid, I had a model of a Gazelle that this airplane has been in service with so many countries um, through the Middle East and South America and Europe. Uh, it's, there's all kinds of variants. Um, you know, it had one of the first uh, enclosed tail rotor designs. Um, and it's it's just, uh, you know, kind of sad. The, the older we get, I suppose, to see some of these aircraft being retired and, you know, going off into sticks and museums. And mm, it's kind of sad. So next story, Armando, is uh, yours. All right, I guess I'm the only one that feels that way about the gazelle. Um, <laughs> this uh, not well, sorry, it's a, it's a helicopter. It just beats the sky into submission. <laughs> right, that just never gets old. You know, just wait. Have you ever flown in a helicopter? I have. And you just not into it, not at all. Not really. I've had a go in a Sea King. Um, that was very heavy. I've also had a go in a. Jet Did you lift one. it up? That a friend of my uh, yeah yeah um i had to go in a i can't remember what it was called i'll send you the pictures though um yeah great great fun to fly when you're flying forward brilliant when you put it into hover i just don't like it because then you realize there's there's thousands of moving parts above your head and that's the only thing that's keeping you in the sky uh, that's what i think of an airbus too <laughs> it's got, but an airbus has still got two wings it's a big glider at the end of the day that's a gazelle's got four wings or three wings, however many rotor it has. It's just they just happen to be going around your head. <laughs> um, right, anyway, we sorry. digress. Uh, F-16s <laughs> going to the Middle East. Uh, more F-16s actually uh, just announced a couple of days ago. Uh, as you guys can imagine, the it's a very volatile situation. But the latest development is the New Jersey Air National Guard 119th Expeditionary Fighter Squadron has gone over to the Middle East. This uh, brings the U.S. Air Force only footprint up to six squadrons of fighter aircraft. Um, and they've actually begun attacking some uh, sites in response to some of the uh, attacks on coalition forces there in Syria, I believe. Um, but this, the F-16 is obviously multi-role fighter. It can do all the things. Uh, they're joining some F-15s that are already there from Lakenheath, which I think we talked about last week or two weeks ago. 
uh, A10 Thunderbolts from Davis Monthan are already there, and there are um, there's another F15E squadron that's there. But uh, there were some statements from the U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin um, that they were in communication with uh, Iraqi Prime Minister Mohammed Shia Al Sudani as officials are seeking to deter threats against U.S. uh, and coalition forces actually in the region. So as you can imagine, it's a situation that is ever volatile, but more and more um, forces are flooding into the region, which I don't know if any of us are too crazy about, but I guess it's it's a necessary thing, huh? Actually, you're talking about the F-16 there, slightly off topic, but I saw there was a video posted on, funnily enough, one of the sites I follow on Instagram, Armando, which is about uh, military aviation. Yes, I do follow something about that. And someone had put um, a video of, a, it was like a, looking at the back end of um, like a transport aircraft, an F-16 following behind right up close. And it it was a it was a hell of a video. It was so so good. It was so well done. And you could see the pilot sitting in there, and you could see the actual um, like the the mist going into the air intake on the F sixteen. It's, it's still to me. I think the F sixteen is one of the most stunning fighter jets out there. Just saying. I I think it's probably going to go down in history as one of the most what venerable fighters out there. Mm. Um. Thanks, Andy. By the way, that's a Eurocopter. It was made in the same factory as your airplane. So, was it? I, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I, don't know. I had a fly of it. It was good fun. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't like to do it a lot. <laughs> no, nah, you know what? To be fair, I didn't like doing it either. I'd much rather. I'd much rather fly a, a turbine DC three than a uh, than an Osprey any day. I'll fly anything fixed wing. I'm happy with. As long as it's got a fixed wing. Yeah. Have you okay, had, I'll give you that. Uh, have you had much experience in uh, the the helicopter style of aviation, uh, Nev? Uh, no, I've only been on a helicopter twice. Uh, once was 1982. Uh, those very nice folks at Sony uh, took us to... Uh, the Monaco Grand Prix. So we flew to Nice and then we got a helicopter from Nice to the Principality, which was very interesting. Nice. Not done that before. And then subsequently at Silverstone, I was doing some work for a well-known Formula One company and they very kindly kindly took us around the circuit, literally about, I don't know, 200 feet above the circuit in a helicopter, uh, which was also quite interesting as well. So those are the, the only two times I've been uh, been rotary. Um, it still fascinates me, and it shouldn't really work at all, but it does seem to. But what I like uh, and will be interested to hear about from our friend Rory, who's working for the um, oil field transport folks, uh, those operations must be extremely challenging, I would think. So next time, in fact, I'm up to Aberdeen next week. I might see if he's around. Also, week after next, I might see if he's around. We can have a oh, that'd be great, chat Nev. with him. But um, yeah, he's um, th- th- those those sorts of operations. I would imagine, as well as search and rescue, are extremely challenging. I would have thought. Now, Andy, you've got the next one in the list, and uh, one of your favourites here, the one three five. Yes. Um... 
So this is from Air... Oh, the text has just got massive. Whoever's improved that, thank you. Uh, AeronSpaceForces.com. Uh, Lockheed Martin has withdrawn its LMXT aerial refueler from the Air Force's KC-135 fleet recapitalization program, previously referred to as the bridge tanker effort, the company said on October the 23rd. However, its partner Airbus said it will press on, offering its multi-role tanker transport MRTT version of the aircraft. A Lockheed spokesperson said the company will focus on the next-gen air refueling system NGAS program instead. We are transitioning Lockheed Martin's LMXT team and resources to new opportunities and priority programs, including development of aerial refueling solutions in support of the NGAS program, the spokesperson added. We remain committed to the accelerated delivery of advanced capabilities that strengthen the U.S. Air Force's aerial refueling missions. An Airbus spokesperson said the company remains committed to provide the U.S. Air Force and our warfighters with the most modern and capable tanker on the market and will formally respond to the KC-135 recapitalization request for information. The A330 US MRTT is a reliable choice for the US Air Force, one that will deliver affordability, proven performance and unmatched capabilities, they added. The Air Force released the RFI on the September the 14th, but the document is controlled and not available for public dissemination. Lockheed had almost six weeks to review the document before deciding not to pursue the program further, but only say through the spokesperson that a combination of a few factors in the RFI shaped our decision, as well as the acceleration of the NGAS program. The company said that uh, the details of its partnership with Airbus are proprietary and would not say whether Lockheed faces any financial obligations to Airbus as a result of its decision to end its part of the LMXT. As to whether any elements of the LMXT which Lockheed brought to the partnership could find their way into Airbus's proposal, the Lockheed spokesperson said any future tanking opportunities between Lockheed Martin and Airbus will need to be considered based on specific requirements and timelines. The Air Force was not immediately prepared to provide comment on Lockheed's decision. Service officials said as recently as August that there is not yet an acquisition strategy for the KC-135 recap program or NGAS as the Air Force analysis of alternatives, sorry, analysis of alternatives for both programs was to begin after the RFI responses. The KC-135 recapitalization is currently projected to be a program of about 75 aircraft at roughly 15 per year, meeting the Air Force's desire to keep some kind of traditional refueling aircraft in production between the end of Boeing's KC-46 program, which wraps up with uh, 179 aircraft circa 2028, and operational service of the yet undefined NGAS in the mid-2030s. Wow, that's amazing that they'll have produced the 767 for that long. Yeah, and this there this is shot number two at bringing the the Airbus um, MRTT over to the U.S. I think there was an effort maybe a decade ago, and it got tanked by some, well, let's just say politics here. Uh, so I am actually pretty happy to see that the Airbus uh, is back in the running for a replacement of the, because it's an already proven airplane, right? Like when they embarked on this KC-46 project of converting it from a 767 to a tanker, like you know, we're still fighting some delays on that. But the the Airbus, the MRTT has already been in production and service. It's proven itself. The technology has proven itself. Man, I just, you could, as a taxpayer, I can only hope that, uh, you know, they're going to be made in Mobile, Alabama, I think. 
<laughs> so I'm sure, Airbus I'm sure they would put a production line there. I wouldn't see why they wouldn't. No, I think Airbus already has a, a, a pretty big production facility there in Mobile. In fact, I think yeah. they, they uh, expanded it in the last couple of years. So it's going to be U.S. jobs anyways. Um, but, you know, jobs over in Europe, it's just best for everybody. And it's already, it's a combat proven airplane. So I, it's, it's I like really hope It's like every aircraft in the world. It, it's produced, there's bits from Japan, there's bits from Europe, <laughs> there's bits from the U.S. anywhere. So it is, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure, but I'm sure they'll put a 330 production line into Mobile, definitely. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, speaking of aircraft production, the B-21, the Raider, this is something we've been talking about. Uh, I think the last time we talked about it was when they unveiled it and they had some pretty far away uh, photos and a press release. But the first B-21 Raider has actually begun it, its taxi tests um, and they are preparing for its first flight, hopefully by the end of the year, according to the Air Force. Um, they did say that no photography is planned. It's not going to be a public event. But the most recent photos of the B-21 at Air Force uh, Plant 42, that's in Palmdale, California, they did show the aircraft outside the hammer, the hangar, uh, presumably for engine runs. But uh, if anybody has seen some aerial imagery of Plant 42, it's just a maze of buildings. And none of it is visible from the ground there, from local road, uh, roadways or anything like that. But there are some social media plants that actually monitor Plant 42, and they have been buzzing about about something moving at the Northrop end of the uh, plant for the last couple of days. Uh, taxi tests, of course, indicate that the aircraft has already conducted engine runs. Um, they're probably measuring ground handling qualities as well as some of the telemetry and the systems. They've done some uh, slow and medium test before embarking on the high-speed tests, which are probably next. All this is conjecture, but it seems like everything is pointing towards a, uh, a first flight, hopefully by the end of the year. So, um, yeah, again, it's not going to be a public event. It's not going to be media present. We'll probably hear about it three months after the fact, <laughs> unless Jonathan Warner is out there, and then he's just going to be low crawling through the desert of California trying to get his shots. So is this just an upgraded version of the B-2? Uh, same concept airplane, as in it has wings and engines and no tail, but I think it's pretty much a clean sheet design. The B-2 was designed in the 70s, right? This was, yeah. this is a little bit more, I think, you know, same flying wing look, but I, I think it was mostly clean sheet. Not the B-2neal. <laughs> no yeah <laughs> that's it that's all we got for military that's all we got for military now yeah. handing uh, things over uh, to nev obviously last week we uh, put together the competition to win the dam busters book which uh, i haven't got with me here in the studio but uh, for those of you who watch the show last week will have seen the book it is sitting at home ready to be posted away to this week's winner so nev What's going on? Yes, well, the question was, uh, what is generally considered to be the world's oldest commercial airline, which was established in 1919? And um, we gave you three uh, choices, multi-choice question. Uh, A, KLM, B, Qantas, C, Delta Airlines. Everybody got the right answer, would oh. you believe? Uh, and we had a lot of um, entries. The right answer being, of course, KLM which I th thought it might be, but 
you know, let's look it up to be sure. So let's have a quick rummage through the uh, the oh god, it's about probably twelve, fifteen in here, I would say, something like that. So let's have a rummage and let's see who comes out of the hat. Tension is unbelievable, isn't it? Who has won the book? Who's won the Dan Buster's book this week, Nev? Uh, this week is James Ormondroid. I don't think we've had him as a winner before, so that's rather good. Nice. Good so, to see. New, James, fresh name. Um, we will send you a book if you can send us your address, and Carlos will post it out to you. I, I shall. Will, uh, I'll send you a quick email in a minute after the show to say thank you very much for entering and that you have won. Now, Nev, the all-important question is, what everyone in the chat room is wondering, is what is this week's prize and what is this week's question? It's a bit of a stinker, I'm afraid, but Ooh. I thought we'd, you know, why, why not mix it up a bit? Um, this week's quiz question is, who was the detachment commander of the RAF's Avro Vulcan Force on Ascension Island? Who was the detachment commander of the RAF's Avro Vulcan, Vulcan Force on Ascension Island? Send your answer to podcast at plaintalkinguk.com and the prize this week is this. It's the Haynes Manual of the Afro Falcon. And actually, it's a really good book. Um, some fabulous uh, illustrations and pictures in here. Um, it is 188 pages. Um, all sorts of stuff about the construction of the aircraft. Uh, exploded diagrams, all sorts of stuff, and uh, they've done a really good job of this, actually. So I would definitely recommend it. Um, Twenty-five pounds were you to buy it, but you can have it for free if you get the answer to the question, which was, who was the de the detachment commander of the RAF's Avro Vulcan Force on Ascension Island? And of course, we do know this aircraft played such a big role uh, during the Falklands back in the day. Does it detail do, um, how I, to do an oil change, Nev? Uh, let's have a look. Let's just check. Uh, I'm going to look in the um, uh, index at the back. Um, does, 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 does it, does it tell you where the washer Actually, bottle is? No. On page 120, <laughs> it does talk about the oil systems. Um, oh. And, yes, there is Yeah, there, there's information about it in here. So, yeah. I think <laughs> that would look great just, next to my Haynes manual for my Vauxhall Corsa from yeah, 1984. Yeah, it's a bit more than six litres of oil and, and a filter, I think. But, yeah. Um, nonetheless. <laughs> you could probably drop, I don't know, how many Corsas out of the Bombay of a Vulcan? <laughs> yeah, quite <laughs> a four. <laughs> probably four or five at least, right? Yes. Yeah. I love that Nev has started picking out the questions from the book that he is giving away. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, I like it, because if it's have just you noticed an that I'm just question. getting into some military stuff here as well? Yes. Oh, wow. I have a big old grin on my face. I told you, I'm sending you a flight suit with a name patch on it. There you go. And you can iron it, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, look anyway, forward yeah, to that. So <laughs> I hope, uh, hope, well, say so get on with the quiz. Um, we'll also post it on the socials this week as well. Dirk has made a very good point in the chat room, Nev. He said that would come in handy if your Vulcan breaks down on your daily commute. There you go. It's great. Great observation. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> now, before we start to wrap up the show, Armando, you, uh, you've, you dropped a few pictures in. I have them ready. So if you want to uh, um, explain away. Yeah. So uh, the, 
the day finally happened where I was able to go up to Virginia and pick up the airplane. The weather was beautiful. This whole week has just been clear skies, nice, calm winds, uh, fall colors. Um, so I couldn't pass that up. And I went up and picked up the biplane. We haven't given it a name yet. We're, we're leaning towards the pumpkin because it is bright orange. Um, but uh, I spent the first night over in Norfolk, Virginia with Andy Finley. Andy Finley is uh, one of the Reno racers. He races the number 30 steel airplane, the kind of title sponsor. He hosted me um, for an evening, great time with his family. And then the next day, um, so I'm still learning the airplane and it's kind of characteristics. So I didn't really want to fly more than one hour legs. It should be able to do two hours, well, two and a half hours, but two hours with a little bit of reserve. I was kind of sticking to one hour legs. Plus it was, it was wicked cold in the morning. So, um, the, the, just the, I don't know, the feeling of flying that airplane at a thousand feet above the ground, um, you know, one hour flights, get it home, three legs. So two hours, 45 minutes home. Uh, it was just, there was nothing like it. I'm looking forward to flying it hopefully for the next uh, you know, 10, 15 years. I, this is the kind of airplane that, that, that one keeps as a Saturday afternoon flyer, but you can see there from the pictures, I flew over a couple of really, really pretty lakes and, uh, the whole time it, uh, well, let's just say the cabin heat actually worked pretty well. So I was happy for that, but I was, I was still bundled up with the leather jacket and the sheepskin, uh, hat and the goggles and the whole deal, but it was a beautiful, beautiful flight home handles just like a cub really easy to land so um no joke anybody that is uh in the area and wants to go for a a biplane ride let's uh you know hit me up you got my information and and to all our fellow podcast community if you're ever in the area then let's go uh let's go for a ride but uh but she is home indeed i'm just looking up flights now because she's That's beautiful that is two shows in a row that we've talked about it. You just have to convince Mama. <laughs> yeah, I I yeah. got to say that paint scheme, Armando. The first thing that comes to mind when I see that paint scheme is the Dukes of Hazard. Yeah, it's called uh, it's called Cruiser Orange and uh, Hickory Hickory Brown for the stripe. So it's a uh, it it is it does stand out. It's got, it's got some ramp presence and. Uh, already the you know the half a dozen airports that I've already visited, uh, I have to budget an extra fifteen twenty minutes because somebody inevitably will come up and and uh, chat with me about it. But it looks classic, but it's actually it's got a lot of modern com components in there. You can for the people that know what they're looking at, you can see it's got some uh, Acme Aero uh, actually uh, gas shocks. Um, it's got a modern engine, brand new wide deck O three twenty in it, so it's very powerful. Three hundred foot ground roll. <laughs> got it in the air in 300 feet uh so it's incredibly overpowered uh yeah amazing amazing it, performance ex explain to me a question armando the four is that four exhaust pipes from the underneath there yeah so the the aircraft had four individual exhausts as opposed to well, all of them going into one and that gives it almost a radial engine sound it actually sounds very, you know, kind of pop, 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 uh, going through the sky. I did a couple low passes uh, from the guy that sold it to me uh, over his farm. 
um, which was admittedly the most nervous that I was is uh, his, his airstrip was only 1200 feet long. And um, it's a grass airstrip with trees on three sides. So it's one way in one way out. And I was really kind of nervous about my first flight in this airplane being out of his 1200 foot strip uh, in front of him. But it was no issues. Power went in. I probably held it on the ground too long because I, you know, 600 feet got off the ground and, and um, yeah, really, really amazing performance on it. Is there many of these in the, um, in the sort of registry of, uh, in the U S some under, is it quite a niche aircraft? No, I think there's, there's a couple hundred of them that have been made. I think that John Hatz designed it in the early eighties. So there's, uh, there's maybe even over a thousand kits that have been sold. I don't know how many are flying, but. It's a, it's essentially a Waco. So it's, it was designed as a Waco YMF five, um, home build. So similar dimensions, maybe just a little bit smaller than the Waco, but, um, that was the inspiration for the, for the aircraft by John Hatz. I suppose a question, uh, I've got to ask is, uh, is the bear gone? <laughs> no. Are you interested? <laughs> <laughs> We can we can take it apart and ship it over there. I I am surprised, having having been in, flown in, and and been with you in the bear. That I I don't think that will last very long on the um, the aviation, what they call them in the U.S. Sort of the auto trader of the U.S. Yeah. For aircraft. I don't like get it with his I... uh, guitars. You can't just have one, can you? <laughs> yeah, I don't get it. I'm trying to sell it, but. Um... I've had a couple people come by and take a look, and uh, it's in great shape. It doesn't have flaps, so it's not. I think a lot of people are looking for stole performance because that's what's popular right now, that kind of backcountry flying. It's got big tires on it, but it doesn't have flaps, so you can't really get it into, you know, five, six hundred feet. Like you, you kind of need a, a thousand, 1500 feet for for the for the super cruiser, especially if you got two people in full of gas. So. That seems to be what I'm what I'm gathering from the people that are interested is they want more, they want shorter takeoff and landing performance and you know, uh, embarking on putting up flaps on an airplane that wasn't designed with flaps is I'm not willing to take that on. So I'll I'll be patient and I'll just have to divide my time you know between them. So for the benefit of those people, I mean those those people who stalk you on Flight Radar Twenty Four, have you got ADSB out on that as well, the new one? Just installed it, November 434 Whiskey Victor. Um, yeah, right now I haven't gotten certified yet, so I have to stay out of ADSB airspace for the time being. Um, but hopefully this week at some point we'll get the transponder and the ADSB certified and tweaked for whatever it needs to. But yeah, it's gorgeous. Although I don't know what I discovered is on the way home at a thousand feet, it wasn't it wasn't high enough for most of the radar and ADSB towers to pick it up. So um, it was actually pretty spotty um, on the way home. Hmm. That's the gorgeous aircraft, Armando. Lots of love in the chat room as well for it. So, yeah, very good. And uh, Richard Adams says, uh, you better call it Daisy, obviously after the Dukes of Hazard. That's not a, not a bad name. Perhaps that's what we should do, have a PTUK naming competition for Armando's aircraft. What do you think? I should, I should make the aircraft cover out of uh, denim and then just make sure it's cut off. <laughs> with little frayed edges and say 
If you put a competition up, though, it'll end up being named Plainy McPlainface. Wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, a later on a later show or after hours, I'll I'll tell you guys a story about how my Lantair was named. It is not not family friendly. <laughs> and that's what happens when you leave it to your friends to name your airplane. That'll be for the Patreon subscribers. <clears throat> anyway. Um, <laughs> Moving on towards the end of the show, then we're going to uh, start to wrap things up. But uh, going to have a, a quick round, Robin, to see what everyone is up to next week. Obviously, uh, Andy, we'll start with you, being your guest host for the evening. What's uh, going on in the world of Andy next week? Oh, it's dead easy. I'm office based all week. Oh, simple as that. Best, best get yourself a flight sim equipment online and start flying. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm okay, thanks. <laughs> Oh dear, honestly. Um, Nev, what, what are you up to next week? Hopefully you'll be doing some flying. Yes, not in the left-hand seat. Well, almost in the left-hand seat. In seat 1A, obviously. Uh, from London Gatwick to uh, Las Palmas, uh, Gran Canaria. <gasps> I've not been there before. Um, and looking forward to the 27 degrees centigrade Celsius, I mean, that uh, is being offered at the moment. So uh, looking forward to that. And he's uh, saying that seat number one with the, the thing he was just holding up there. Um, so, yes, I'm looking forward to that very much. Um, and so I won't be on the show next week because I will still be sipping, sipping me pina colada uh, by, the, uh, by the Radisson. Um, so, uh, but uh, no, we're renting a car, which would be nice just to get around the island and just have a look and see what it's all about. Uh, Sue's been there previously, but I have not been to Grand Canaria, so uh, I'm looking forward to that very much. Well, on behalf of all the team, and I'm sure the uh, the chat room, have a lovely holiday, won't you, Nev? And, Thank um, you. Yes. Yeah, don't forget. I kind to of a... need it at the moment because uh, it's been so busy at work, and it's my birthday next week as well. Oh so. yes. It's a good time to, to do that sort of thing, isn't it? So, yeah. Well, enjoy yourself, Nev. And uh, like I said, don't forget to give us a full trip report when you get back with the uh, flights. I'm sure there might be a rant somewhere to her. Well, I hope not. Well, I don't <laughs> mind doing a rant on a business trip because that's kind of that's goes with the territory. But when you're going on holiday, you don't really want anything no. to, you know. We've, we've got the Apple... Uh, air tags in the bags now this time so if we have a, another incident of bags being left behind at least we can tell them uh, <laughs> tell the operatives where they are did you say you were going from Gatwick yes so you know it's it's not a speedbird call sign oh isn't it I don't no, know be that because it's operated by Euroflyer oh. and their call sign is Griffin oh yes, isn't it I'd forgotten yeah. that uh, but they're saying we're on an A321, which I didn't think that they had in their fleet, but perhaps they have. Hmm. Interesting. Well, we'll see, won't we? Oof. Let's hope we don't tip up on the uh, on the tail <laughs> when we're unloading. <laughs> so, Armando, what uh, is going on in your world next week? Anything exciting? Um, back in the Hawker... Uh, sorry, the Orca. Hawker. Hawker. Horka, uh, um, this weekend, um, got a short trip, two day trip, and hopefully just fly both the biplane and the super cruiser. And then, and then next Friday, I won't be on the show. That is likely my last Pilatus trip. 
Um, so going down to Key West and back uh, for the night. Um, so I won't be on the show next Friday as of now. And then that's Friday and then Saturday back into the Hawker. So a little bit of, a little bit of corporate flying and then some fun flying in between. It's your final flight in the uh, PC 12 then. Yeah, I think so. Oh, wow. The insurance uh, extended me one more month. It was supposed to be October 31st, but November 3rd, they said, eh, we'll extend them a month. And, uh, they needed a pilot to, to go down to Key West, so oh. that's pretty cool. It's always a cool trip, a single pilot down to Key West. Sad times, and you're going to miss that uh, flying that aircraft, I bet. Uh, yes and no. Ah, okay. What am I up to next week? Well, work, which uh, is good at the moment. I love enjoying my job, love my job, so that's all good. Being busy and, um, yeah, doing what I do in the uh, weekend this weekend. Got a gig tomorrow night. Halloween's uh, um, themed karaoke night tomorrow night so I've uh, got that to look forward to and uh, yeah this is going to be interesting I think and it's a fancy dress one as well so I may well don a fancy dress theme of some description tomorrow evening if I can um, what on be earth will you will you go as Carlos well funnily enough Mr Bounds last do you remember during lockdown we used to, we were doing the kitchen discos at home yes when we done a Halloween special one, Gemma made me a Count Dracula costume. And, and by May, made it, she actually physically sewing machine material made the whole costume and stuff. So I shall probably wear that and go as Count Dracula. Mwahaha. There we go. Oh. <laughs> so that is where we're going to bring episode 477 to a close nev i'm going to leave you to uh, sign us off this evening so i can press all the buttons and do what matt normally does here uh, on the show don't forget i'll be back next week hopefully and uh, nev's on holiday matt will hopefully be back in the seat as well and uh, as armando said uh, he will be missing next week but uh, nev over to you to close the show yeah, just before we go, don't forget uh, the socials, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search, search us for Plain Talking UK. The WhatsApp number is plus 44757 That's plus 44757 And the email address is podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. And that's the one to use for this week's competition as well. And we'll put that on the socials during the week so just like to thank everybody in the chat room for joining us this evening thank you to armando and especially to andy as well for joining us had a really great time it's always good to have two professional pilots on the show rather than us sort of amateur types that just talk about it um so it's it's good to get some insight uh, from those guys i uh, hope everyone has a great and safe weekend i'll be back uh the week after next in the meantime stay safe and see you soon bye for now We'll